Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just are speechless in truth in our hearts when we recognize the incredible privilege that is ours to overhear a prayer between you and your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we, we hear Christ pray to you in the intimacy of the relationship which only you know. Thank you for your great kindness and generosity in sharing this with us. And may, due to this study, we be more rooted and grounded in Christ, in the faith, for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are continuing our study in John 17 as we continue our study throughout the Gospel of John. And at this point, we are looking at the high priestly prayer of Jesus. The high priestly prayer, because that is how he is functioning. He is priesting for his people. And so when we come to the end of this passage, we're going to remind ourselves of the comprehensive office of mediator that Christ holds. And uh, just to give us a summary, we often have evangelicals say, you know, we don't need a priest. And uh, I understand the Protestant impulse to say we don't need a priest. Uh, we, the, the person who gets up and presides our service is not a priest. Uh, but the, the reality is we desperately need a priest. Without a priest, there is no mediation between us and the Father. Without a priest, there is no intercessor for us. But indeed, as the book of Hebrews tells us, we have a great high priest, the great high priest, even Jesus Christ our Lord. He priests for us. He is doing so even before his ascension in this prayer. And in a sense, his entire incarnation is a part of his priesthood. But in particular, upon his ascension, when he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he ever makes intercession for us, that is when Jesus Christ is functioning as the great high priest. We have had two sessions together looking at the high priestly prayer, taking about five verses at a time. We're going to begin today just after verse 11, but in order to gain the context, let's just remember the first verses. John tells us, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We're going to pause there for a moment. Uh, One of the most uh, interesting lessons we learn is uh, what we learn by being asked questions. Rather than asking questions, what we learn by being asked questions. And we had a major uh, youth event, uh, event for high school students, Thursday night, and uh, by virtual means, I was speaking to about 1,200 teenagers, and then at the end of the, the night, we had an Ask Anything session, and so uh, these uh, young people from churches all the way from Canada to, to both coasts and in between were sending in questions, and it tells you something about the faithfulness of the churches where these uh, students are, uh, are being taught, that their questions were so good. But I was surprised that uh, two of the questions had to do with the inter-Trinitarian mystery. 
And, uh, and so you had teenagers asking these questions. How was how, how, how the father related to the son? How was it that the son did not know the time or the hour? Uh, yet he's fully God. And you can see these young people, they're trying to think through the mystery of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man. He, he, he has all the attributes of deity. And, uh, and yet he says that not even he knows the hour uh, of his coming. And then another one was also directed towards the Trinitarian mystery and uh, an extremely smart question. But it was interesting that at this point I was able to refer to this very text uh, because this text really helps to explain the incarnation as a Trinitarian experience. That is to say, what, 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 was, the, what, what, what was the meaning of the incarnation inside the relationship of the Trinity? And uh, obviously we're dealing here with... a what Calvin would call an analogical knowledge. In other words, this, this is words used to describe that which is beyond words. But they're true words, and this is true knowledge. This is what human beings can handle. But, but notice what Jesus says here. He says, now, Father, in verse 5, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, remember the prologue to the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus is the very agent of creation, but before the world was created, before the incarnation, he knew a glory with the Father that he accepted to be diminished during the time of his incarnation. He is now looking to the cross, looking to the empty tomb, looking to his ascension, and he's praying to the Father, looking with anticipation to the restoration of the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world. What does that tell us? It tells us something of what Jesus experienced, and, and, and thus was a, the Trinitarian experience on behalf of the Son in the incarnation. He forfeited some of his glory to be among us, not all of his glory. John tells us we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But we could not have survived his full glory. Even as... Um, as I said, Calvin reminds us of the analogical nature of language. We also have to recognize that had Jesus presented himself to us without hiding some of his glory, we would have been destroyed. We, uh, we, we, we aren't able to handle the presence. And, and how do we know that? It's because God told Moses that. First of all, if we didn't have any other text... God told Moses that, you want to behold my glory? You can't handle my glory. My glory would destroy you, but I will pass by as you're hidden in the cleft of a rock. Similarly, in Philippians chapter 2, where we are told about the, uh, the incarnation, in Philippians chapter 2, we have the, the very same logic in slightly different language. And, uh, and this is often called the kenosis because of one Greek word. It's a dangerous category because there are, uh, are, are some who are tempted to push that far beyond its biblical bounds. But nonetheless, what we read in Philippians chapter 2 is, have this mind among yourselves, this is verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has 
highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that tells us something else. That tells us that even as in the incarnation, Christ in obedience accepted a reduction of his glory, certainly his visible glory as he was amongst us. And, and, and there was more to it than that. Again, the question, how is it that the son did not know the time of his return? But, but uh, Paul tells us that the glory that Christ prays to the Father about here in John 17, the glory that he had with the Father before the creation of the world actually turns out to be an even greater glory because the obedience of the Son is rewarded by the Father even with the title Lord and with the fact that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the things we need to note is the timeline of biblical history, and this, this is probably intuitive to you. It should be intuitive to Christians. The timeline of biblical history is eternity, eternity. You can't say eternity to eternity, but we don't have any category other than that. Uh, we, we don't have a category of timelessness. We really don't have a category of everlastingness. Now, I mean, we know intellectually it's true, but we can't really experience it, so we we merely declare it. But the timeline of biblical history is eternity and then the creation of time as God created the world. He created the world as objects in movement. Objects in movement define time. Might not have thought about that, but that's actually what defines time. Until you have objects in movement, and the biblical creation account tells us exactly how it happens. Uh, You have objects in movement, thus you have time. But time only lasts so long as the objects are in movement. The objects stop, time stops. All kinds of issues and witness could be brought here from physics. But on the other side of time, eternity. And what you have in the timeline of Scripture here is that you have human history interrupted by the incarnation, which changes all time going forward so that Everything forward is incarnational time, and, and it's Messiah time. And that's why, for instance, in accordance with the, the Christian understanding of time, you have the dates B.C. and A.D. And it's not before Christ and after Christ. It's, it's, it's before Christ, yes, that's B.C., but Anno Domini, which is the year of our Lord, which is uh, where the, the, the uh, letters A.D. come from. And it's also interesting that if you, if you follow this and you know how you're supposed to do it, if it's B.C., say 646 B.C., then you're supposed to put 646 B period, C period, capital B, capital C. If it is A.D., the A.D. comes before the year. So if you look at classical history written until the recent developments, which I'll speak of, classical history was written such that it would be he, you know, the, this empire lasted from 646 B.C. to A.D. 45, the year of our Lord, 45. And the year is, the A.D. comes before the year because Anno Domini announces this is the year of our Lord. History split in two. Jesus is here praying this prayer uh, at the end of his incarnation, but the age is not coming to an end. 
And that's what's really important. There is, no, there is no incarnational age that comes to an end. The incarnation comes to an end on earth, but remember, Christ is incarnate now. He is incarnate in his resurrection body. Here's Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. He has a resurrection body. He's the first fruits of those who will follow, who are in him. We too will have a resurrection body in heaven. We will not have a disembodied experience, but a resurrection body. Little footnote here on the uh, political correctness, those who are trying to secularize BC and AD. And uh, it, it's just your typical kind of nonsense that I, I was in a public setting where I was able to puncture holes in it. And I'll admit it was probably an unhealthy delight. But, uh, you know, it was, it was, they said, no, you can't say BC and AD. I mean, you can't have secular people. You can't have people in the public schools going AD 45. Then you have these little kids saying the year of our Lord. There's a separate, there's the union of church and state. That's theocracy breaking out in America's schools. So you can't do that. And so, you know, they adopted the, the new language of uh, BCE and CE. So BCE, so you can't talk about Christ, so it's common era. This is our common era. Of course, why we have more in common in this era than with the, before the common era, well, we're not going to talk about that because that'd take us right back. But nonetheless, yeah, before common era and common era, and uh, so I was in a context on a secular university campus where I was chastised for uh, refusing to go with BCE and CE. You know, no, the current historical lingo. And I said, well, why is that? And it says to remove the Christian references. And I said, well, how in the world did you do that? Well, we took BC and made it BCE. And we took AD and made it CE. I said, yes, but how did you come up with the numbers? What has been split in two? I mean, everything goes down from here and everything goes up from here and you think you can just rename what you're calling it as if somebody tripped over a rock in Spain and just said, hey, let's start counting all over again? No, sorry. It just, it's the centrality of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then beginning in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but you are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So in the intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son, even as Jesus is praying, he, he says that he has accomplished what the Father sent him to do. He has manifested. He has made real and visible. He has made announced your name to the people. And then the giving. This is what we spent our time last week on. It's this giving, not just of salvation to sinners, not just giving the world a savior. It's this incomprehensible, except comprehensible, because it's been made simple to us. We don't understand everything about it, but it's one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian life. We have the Father giving the redeemed to the Son as gift. 
And we have the Son effectively giving the redeemed back to the Father as gift. And the Son and the Father enjoying the redeemed as gift. So even as we think about the gift that's been given to us, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life, he's given us the gift of everlasting life. In reality, the redeemed, known before the foundation of the world, given by the the Father to the Son before the world was created. Uh, There's the gift, the gift from the Father to the Son. And, And Christ is, in effect, sharing the gift with the Father. And then he goes on and says again, what, uh, the, the, they're in me, they are in you. You gave them to me out of the world. Now remember, that's, that comes right after verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. But not only is history split in two, humanity is split in two. And it's so clear in this text between those who are in Christ, those, are, those who are his, but we became his because we were given to him by the Father. And, and so you have history divided, you have humanity divided. And the, this, this division of humanity is such that, as we've seen, uh, even as we saw testified in John chapter 6, the ones who belong to the Son can never be taken from him because we were given to the Son by the Father. That, that, that's really, really important. How is it that we came to be in Christ And the answer is because the Father gave us to the Son. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Then of all all that the Father gives me, I will lose, the Son will lose none of them. That's very good news. So is Jesus praying for some of his own here? No, he's praying for all of his own. But this astounding thing is the division in humanity that Jesus mentions, even in verse 9. I am praying for them, that is his own, those who are in him. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. That is, as we saw last week, one of the most striking verses in all of Scripture. The distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. So much so, and here's what's so important for us to see, Christ is not priest to the world. He's priest to the church. And, and that is an astounding change as we think about biblical theology because as we begin in the book of Genesis, God is Lord over the entire universe, the cosmos. He made everything that is. He reigns over everything. Jesus reigns with him as the logos of the universe over the entire world. But he is priest, mediator, intercessor for his own. That clarity is a, is a necessary clarity. The church is always gravely endangered when it loses the understanding of the distinction between the church and the world. That, that understanding of the church and the world, that distinction can be, 
can be falsely defined as something special about us. And once we do that, then we understand why the specialness of the distinction between the, uh, the church and the world dissipates. Because if it's about us, something special about us, all we have to do is spend some time looking in the mirror and experiencing life together to recognize we're not as special as we thought we were. Uh, and so the distinction between the church and the world, if dependent upon the observation of us any given day, uh, might be quite frus- frustrating. But the point is that uh, the distinction between the, the church and the world is Christ and those who are in Christ. And, and that's the big distinction. And uh, similarly, as you're thinking about the, the, the fact that the great distinction here is between those who are in Christ and those who are just in the world, um, it's the same thing when you understand, and, and this is a hard thing to talk about, uh, when people talk about the fatherhood of God. So, Let's just talk about the, the first person of the Trinity for a moment, the fatherhood of God. And, uh, or does God love the world? Does, is it fair to say God loves the world? And, and if so, how does God love the world? And this is, this is a footnote here, but it might be helpful just to kind of remind us. Uh, there are several aspects of God's love for his creatures. So first of all, if God made it, he loves it in some sense. If he didn't love it, he wouldn't have made it. He made it. When he, every day of creation, he declares it's good. Of course, when he gets to human beings made in his image, it's very good. But nonetheless, everything that he makes by the fact that he made it is the recipient of his love in some dimension. The first dimension, which is common to all creation, is benevolence. Okay? So when we talk about benevolence, that's a word for love. Um, benevolence means... As the Bible says, he makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. So benevolence, God's benevolence towards all humanity means that we enjoy the sun and the rain. We enjoy the gift of life. Uh, there are goods uh, that come, uh, you know, even unbelievers love their children. There are, there are many good gifts that are given to us and what we eat and what we enjoy and the air we breathe, this uh, this cosmically, anthropically designed planet in which life is habitable. So God's benevolence is to all. But just to, to save time, even though there are different dimensions, we'll reduce it to two. Uh, but his mercy, his, his, his redeeming mercy is towards those who are in Christ. And that's a different kind of love. The Baptist faith and message, which is our official confession of faith, uh, says it this way, and I think this is actually just incredibly right. It says, God is fatherly to all creation, but he is father to those who are in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's right. He's fatherly to all, but he's father to those who are in Christ. Well, you see that reflected in Jesus' prayer but if I were an unbeliever reading this, I would, uh, I would be more offended by this verse than anything else in the Gospel of John. This, this to me, just to a secular reader, would be the most shocking text. Because here we are told that Jesus himself, the, you know, just think of what the modern cultural conception of Jesus is. You know, a, a, a moral teacher, a remarkable example of righteousness, Certainly, he must be an exemplar of 
non-discrimination and inclusivity. Well, actually, reading the Gospels, you find many texts in which that's not true. But here you find that as he's facing the cross, Jesus doesn't pray for the world. That requires the Bible's world picture to be reminded to us again. That world picture. Um, and when we speak of uh, Jesus loving the world, is, is, is what you see as the text to John begins, which is astounding. It's the only gospel that begins there, begins in creation. All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. And so he's the instrument of creation, but his love is for those the Father gave him before the creation of the world, and for them he now prays. By the way, just another little footnote. There are certain parallel arguments that you find in Scripture the more you study, and of course some of those parallel arguments are between Old Testament and New Testament texts, and you realize this is, just a, this is a continuation of an argument, this is the fulfillment of a promise. But inside the New Testament, there are also some lines of argument in which you all of a sudden recognize, well, here's this, and it's picked up over here. Uh, one example is uh, you're reading the Gospel of Matthew, and then maybe, you know, you're, you have two people studying different texts, and, and let's say one of them's reading Matthew, one of them's reading the book of Hebrews. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you recognize, now wait just a minute, there's some incredible parallels here. Another set of parallels, very easy to see, uh, is between the Gospel of John and Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And uh, so throughout church history, sometimes the Gospel of John has been referred to as the Ephesian Gospel. Now, that doesn't mean it was written to the Ephesians. What it means is that the similar laser focus on the sovereignty of God comes in lines of argument that are just incredibly parallel between John and Ephesians. So as you look at John 17, we are going to look even this morning at Ephesians 1 in order to understand a bit more of what it means for the church to be in Christ. So let's turn right now to Ephesians chapter 1. Now remember, we're doing this because we want to understand the church given to Christ, the, Christ be, the church being described as in him, those who are mine. The in him, you see this in a verse like we read in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. But the bigger issue is that we are in Christ because the Father gave us to the Son. Look at Ephesians 1. We'll just, uh, for sake of time, begin reading at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Hint, hint. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has, he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." Now, this is not a prayer. This is a didactic passage. This is, a, this is a passage from the Apostle Paul's writing to the Ephesians. But certainly you must sense the incredible weight of, of commonality here between John 17 and Ephesians 1. And as a matter of fact, Ephesians 1 helps us to understand how it is that we came to be given to Christ before the foundation of the world, which is also the timeline of Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the world, we were predestined in him. Now, Ephesians 1 is the great theater of the, uh, of the display of one of the biblical doctrines most evangelicals fail to understand. And failing to understand this, the grand flow of biblical history and the, the, the heart of biblical theology is, is, uh, is largely missing. They remain shallow. And this is the doctrine of union with Christ. And uh, once again, this is, this is a characteristic emphasis of Reformed Christianity because it's Reformed Christianity that seeks above all others to understand the very text we're reading, John 17 and Ephesians 1. How is it that these things reflect God's will and purpose and heart? And the answer is, because what we are given in Ephesians chapter 1 is the reality that to be redeemed, to belong to Christ, is to be united to him in such a way we can never be severed from him, which is what we had Jesus say consistently in the Gospel of John. And the question becomes, how did that happen? In other words, when were we united with Christ? Well, the, uh, the apostle will help us to understand, and the New Testament will display that we were united with Christ by faith, and justified by faith, when we came in the operations of our heart by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, convicting us of sin, and uh, we came to be made alive, we responded to the gospel, uh, we, we believed, we trusted, we rested in Christ, and thus we, uh, we became His. But wait just a minute. We became His, but we were His, specifically, you know, it's, it's not like if you could just read John 17, and let's say, oh, John's all you have. John 17's all you have. And, uh, and we hear the, the son praying to the father about those you've given me and making the distinction between those and, and the world. Well, I guess it's possible you might say, okay, all right, uh, maybe Jesus came. And uh, so those the father gave him were those who just decided to believe in him. Well, here's the truth. No one is his who does not believe in him. That, that's absolutely true. But Ephesians makes very clear, speaking of not only believers in toto, but of every believer, 
that we were predestined. And that's a hard doctrine, but there it is. By the way, it's no harder than what you see in John 17. Uh, The older I come to be and the more I teach theology, the more I think that the great scandal of Christianity, and it comes to the exclusivity of the gospel and and the the purity of the church and all kinds of things, but it and, and it's very clear in Israel too. The great the great scandal is us and them. And you know, we're living in an age in which we're told it's just wrong to say us and them. And so we us will tell them it's wrong to say us and them. It's inevitable, by the way. It, it, it doesn't work. Even in the most liberal college campus where you say you don't have us and them, you now have all kinds of identity politics, which is us with a capital you know, set of letters and them with a capital set of letters. But the, the interesting thing is, is that this comes up again, and what you see in Ephesians is this symphonic explanation of the fact that we are united to Christ as believers, and and this union with Christ means we are in Him. So just look at the passage, and and for the sake of time, just follow with me very quickly, beginning in verse 3. Notice that uh, verse 4 tells us, even as He chose us in Him, that's in Christ. So we were chosen by the Father in Christ, and then just follow Him. It says, before Him, in love He predestined us, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the redeemed. Then verse seven, in him, that's in Christ. In Christ we have redemption through his blood. And we continue on down. Uh, This is the purpose which he set forth in Christ. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believe and believed in him, were sealed, there it is, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantor, guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. There's no escape, the logic here. And, and, and there's no escape from the logic of John 7. There's no escape from the logic of Ephesians 1. And when you put John 7 and Ephesians 1 together, you have a, a, a comprehensive, just glorious understanding of how it came to pass that the Father, before the creation of the world, predestined, chose, gifted, gave. All these verbs are there. All these words are there. The redeemed to the Son. And those he has given to the Son can never be taken from him. That becomes crucial as we continue on. So we're back now in, in John 17. We concluded with verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." 
<clears throat> so what we have here, what we have here is a second acknowledgement as we had in John chapter 6 that of those the Father has given to the Son, Judas is not one. That Judas is not amongst those who was given before the foundation of the world to Jesus Christ as a gift from the Father to the Son to be then presented by the Son to the Father in the reciprocity of intertrinitarian love. No. Judas wasn't there. Judas just appeared to be there. Jesus knew this. He says this in John chapter 6 because this is when Jesus, some of the larger group of disciples no longer followed him and Jesus turned to the, uh, to the disciples and says, uh, do you also want to go away, you'll recall, in, in John chapter 6? And Peter says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of, of eternal life. Um, and besides that, we've come to know that you are the Christ, the Holy One of God. But uh, we were told then that Jesus knew in himself the thoughts of all men. And he knew in himself that Judas would betray him. So again, that was, that was told us. And then in uh, John chapter 13, uh, there is a reference, as is in the background here, to Psalm 41.9. So in Psalm 41.9, David speaks of the one who has betrayed him, the, the one who was so close to him but has betrayed him. That's the text that's in the background of the statement about Judas in John chapter 13. It's in the background here. So you have Psalm 41, John 6, John 13 in the background to this statement. It's just a reminder to us that no one, that is Jesus and the Father, are not surprised by Judas. Judas is not an interruption in plan. Judas is, a, is not a disappointment in the sense that it didn't turn out like the Father and the Son had intended with Judas. No, it's a part of the divinely ordained plan of salvation. But Jesus is emphatically not praying for him. That's an astounding thing. It's, you know, you think about doors of judgment, you know, an eternal door of judgment closing. Just imagine this. Jesus Christ does not pray for you. Jesus speaks of his flock, recognizing his voice and of himself as the good shepherd tending his flock. To be outside that flock is horror. To be outside that door is horror. To be unprayed for by Jesus is the eternal slamming of a door. You see that right here in John 17. While I was with them, Jesus said in verse 12, I kept them in your name. And, and that's what's so sweet. So Jesus, having been given the people, those who would be in him, the redeemed by the Father, Jesus kept. Isn't that really sweet? He, he kept us. Imagine all the time the disciples were with him, and even as Jesus was sleeping, he was keeping them. And he keeps us. We can't keep ourselves all we like sheep have gone astray. We can't keep ourselves in any sense, internally or externally. But Jesus says, while he was here, he kept us. He didn't lose any. I kept them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. 
I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So we know who he was, and he wasn't really lost because he was never a part of, of, uh, of us in the beginning, but he was, he was among us. But verse 13, Jesus says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So once again, there's something astounding here that jumps out at us. And, and of course, it's following the flow of the prayer. We've been guarded by Christ. Not one has been lost. But again, Jesus says, as he said verses earlier, but now I am coming to you. And so he's praying about the church when he is absent as the incarnate Lord on earth. This, this, is, this is the purpose of the prayer. This is the main purpose of the prayer is Jesus' concern for us without him incarnate on earth. When he was here, he guarded us. He kept us. He's praying for us now. But notice what he prays in verse 13. But now I am coming to you. He's already said that. And he repeats it. And these things that I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So this is something we really need to know. The joy that Jesus knows as the Son with the Father is the joy in its own dimensionality that Jesus wants us to have. He wants us to share in that joy. However you define the the, the love of God toward the objects of his love. The Son is the object of his love. And we in the Son are the objects of his love. Christ says, when I am absent from them, I want them to know joy. Joy. That's really good news. But the joy has a specific shape. It has a specific substance. It's not merely a mood. Look at what he says. It's an, the most amazing testimony to the word of God. But now I'm coming to you in these things that I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. And the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So, I think just about everyone thinking about John 17 knows of Jesus' prayer for the unity of the church. May they be one as we are one. And, and so even the, the larger ecumenical movement has, uh, has claimed this, that we may all be one. Let's just have one church. Let's just have, uh, you know, a visible unity. Here's the problem with, uh, with church history that we can, a problem revealed in church history. I've got to say that it's not that church history is the problem. Church history tells us about the problems. Here's one of the problems. Every effort to try to come up with the lowest common denominator, Christianity, and say, there is the unity of the church, it fails. Uh, because we need to remember that the unity of the church is not institutional. That's a, that's a very important New Testament teaching. It's a very important 
understanding for us. I mean, that we are, we are Baptists, and if anybody on planet Earth understands that the unity of the church is real, but not institutional, it's, uh, it's Baptist. We believe that the unity of the church is seen, first of all, right here, in the unity of this church. This is a church where we're, we're unified in our faith, in our confession, in our service, in our ministry, in our worship, in our covenant. This is why when uh, we have a members meeting, we read the covenant aloud, there's unity. We belong one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We know there are other faithful Christians outside of Third Avenue Baptist Church, just to, just to remind ourselves of that. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful gospel Christians outside of Third Avenue Baptist Church right down the street from us. And uh, thanks be to God and churches all around us. And we believe that there are Christians in churches that are labeled differently. The key issue for us is not so much what is the name on the church, but whether or not the Bible is preached as the Word of God and the gospel is preached in its clarity and purity, producing a gospel people. And so, yes, okay. But there's a reason why, and part of this is in the mystery of God's omniscience, there's a reason why we're not all the Christians in Louisville aren't meeting in one room this morning, and that, that reason, not COVID, by the way. Uh, there's, a, there's a theological reason why we're not meeting, and it is because we have congregations by conviction that are established, and we can know one another, and we can experience the unity together. And this is so much more, you know, so the, the world's idea of unity is put everyone in Madison Square Gardens and look at all the people you see. But of course, what you're looking at is a multitude. There is actually no unity. It's just proximity. Ecclesiology is based upon unity in Christ. But there's more to it than that. As you look at this, you recognize that the unity is theological and the unity is in the Scriptures. I have given them your word. He said that earlier, but now the context is, is very tight. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So at least a part of having the word means that the world hates us. Well, that's, that's something helpful to know. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Very good, very good, because this, this, this helps us. In other words, one of the questions in the flow of biblical history is, why are we here right now? Why is there... Why is there time between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming? What, what, what is the purpose of all this time? We're waiting for crying out loud, why this? And Jesus answered it. When in the book of Acts, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, he is, Christ is showing his glory in the world, but in the world he's showing his glory in the church and through the preaching of the gospel. And so that's it. This is, this is the gospel preaching age. There's no, there's no other reason for this age. There is no other act of salvation history that remains to take place before the coming of Christ will consummate all things. We're not waiting for Christ to do anything. When he said, it is finished, it is finished. No, we have a job to do and we'll do it until Jesus comes. But while we're in the world, in the dangers of the world, Jesus prays for the unity of his church, but the unity is in truth. And this is one of the, the issues of, I think, singular importance for us is understanding that true Christian unity is unity in truth. It's never unity at the expense of truth. It's never trying to find a lowest common denominator. 
it's always leaning into the truth together. Now, this, again, doesn't mean that we believe we're the only Christians. Thanks be to God. It does mean that where there is no obedience to Scripture, there is no true Christianity. As we shall see when we gather together again, in verse 17, Jesus actually says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So now we find out that it's by the preaching of the word of God. Now, when we say here, God, your word, let's be very clear. When Jesus says your word, he means your revelation. So it means the entirety of revelation. Included in that is the word of the gospel. Included in that is, 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 uh, is the Old Testament. Included in that all that God has spoken, but most importantly, what is accessible to us and given to us is the Holy Scripture. So that, that's what we're looking at here. Your word is truth. And it's by the word that we're sanctified. Sanctify them, make the church, make those you've given me before the foundation of the world holy in your truth. And that's where we're going to have to end today. But it does point out something else, and that is, why do we study the Scripture? Why, 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 why do Christ's people study the Scripture? Why are we drawn to come back to the Scripture again and again and again? Because we love the Bible? Yes. Because God speaks, and how dare we not want to hear what he says? Yes, 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 of course. But you also have to understand that this is Christ's priestly ministry to his own through the preaching of the Word to make his people holy. You can put it another way, there is no holiness apart from the Word of God. In the knowledge of the Word, the constraining power of the Word, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, confirming the Word and applying the Word, without, without the Word of God, there's no holiness. And uh, we need all the holiness we can get, which means we need all the Bible we can get. And those who belong to Christ are those who gather together for the preaching and teaching of the Word of God whose instincts are to turn to God's Word. Jesus will say much more in the context of this unprecedented prayer to follow, but it has been such a privilege today just to look not only to this text, but to Ephesians 1 and come to understand the the common witness of Scripture. And we come to the end and we pray with the words of Jesus, Father, sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything you've given to us, every syllable of this text. And Father, we pray that even now you'll be sanctifying your people, this people, we, even who are studying your word here at this church, we pray that you will sanctify us and sanctify your entire church in the truth. Your word is truth. To the everlasting glory of your name. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.